DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Dr. Bunsen serves as the faculty chair of the Catholic Distance University. He is also a senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He is the author or co-author of over 45 books, including The Pope Encyclopedia, The Encyclopedia of Catholic History, The Encyclopedia of Saints, The Encyclopedia of U.S. Catholic History, and Pope Francis. Dr. Bunsen serves as a senior contributor for EWTN. The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Bunsen, thank you so much for joining me. A privilege to be with you, as always, Chris. What a joy to be able to explore the lives of the doctors of the church, and in particular, this doctor, one who many may not even be aware has played such an important role in the life of the church. And we're talking about St. Robert Bellarmine. What's interesting about the life of uh, Robert Bellarmine is that we've seen this before with doctors, and that is you have someone who, by his temperament, by his disposition, is a truly gentle soul, but who was absolutely on fire uh, with love for the church, with love for our Lord, and who was a lion in the defense of her teachings and the defense of the truth of the Catholic faith. So it's, it's a fascinating, a seeming contradiction that one who could be so gentle could actually also be so forceful and so strong. And, and that's the case with Robert Bellarmine, someone who in his lifetime, uh, consider he was born from 1542, uh, died in 1621. So in his 78 long years, he managed to cover so much of the actual implementation of the Catholic reform, the, the so-called Catholic Reformation, and who left, as you noted, immense contributions to the apologetics of the faith, to the great controversies of his time, but who did so with courtesy, with charity, with gentleness, and in a way <laughs> that drove his enemies, especially the, the, the Protestant polemicists, crazy because of the breadth of his knowledge, but also the thoroughness of his approach. He was born in those incredible 1500s, and in a part of Italy that is just breathtaking in its beauty, and that's the area of Tuscany. Yeah, uh, the the central part of Italy, uh, specifically Montepulciano, uh, one of the great wine-producing areas uh, of Italy, of course, the son of, uh, as uh, is often the case of that era, uh, parents who were of the Italian nobility, but who nevertheless had uh, very little by way of material wealth. His father, Vincenzo, and his, uh, his mother, Cinzia Cervini. Cervini, I mentioned specifically because uh, she was a sister of uh, Pope Marcellus II. So he had, right from the start, considerable connections, both in terms of the nobility, but also in terms of the church. Uh, as is often also the case with doctors of the church, uh, with uh, great minds, uh, he displayed immense talent as a child uh, for memorization. Uh, it is estimated that he had uh, and developed very quickly a photographic memory so that uh, he could look at 
uh, an entire homily in Latin uh, when, with one read, uh, then be able to recite it uh, verbatim uh, for his homily. As a child, uh, he memorized uh, the, the poems of the great Roman poet Virgil and also composed a number of poems in both Italian and Latin. It gives us a little snapshot also into his capacity for learning uh, that at one point, uh, as a young Jesuit, he was commanded to teach a, a room full of students Greek, even though he did not know Greek. So the way he learned it was with the students. So in other words, he began with a very systematic review of Greek grammar, picked it up as he went along, and uh, within a very short amount of time, was fluent in Greek and became one of the, the great experts in the subject. That uh, gives us a little idea of what it was like uh, to be Robert Bellarmine. Again, just to give people a sense of what's going on, of course, when we think of that particular period of time, often we think of what's happening in Spain with other doctors of the church, like John of Avila, Teresa of Avila, also the work of the great Ignatius of Loyola. And, and Peter Canisius and, and others. This was a time of giants, and it became clear that Robert wanted to become a priest. In fact, his, his mother encouraged all of her sons to enter the priesthood. His father uh, was disappointed that Robert wanted to join uh, the Jesuits, hoping that uh, his son would be able to rise to the rank of cardinal. It was customary that uh, those who joined the Jesuits did so with no expectation that they would receive those types of preferments. In fact, they were uh, regularly commanded to decline them because the Jesuits were very focused on serving the church in their unique way as established by Ignatius. So his joining then the Jesuits uh, was a bit of a disappointment to his father, and yet it was perfectly positioning him in order to have that exposure uh, to the genius of the early Society of Jesus. And so he entered the novitiate for the Jesuits in Rome uh, in 1560 and then studied elsewhere in Italy, uh, including uh, in Piedmont, where he mastered that Greek I was, I was mentioning. But very, very quickly came to the attention of his Jesuit superiors who allowed him a very comprehensive study of theology at Padua. That's important because this is uh, one of those fast-growing centers for uh, Thomistic studies under the Jesuits, and finished up, in fact, in, in Flanders at the University of Louvain, uh, where he, he was ordained and became a great preacher. It's worth noting that Robert proved to be one of the great preachers of his era. Now, now we're talking about, again, with John of Avila and, and Francis Borgia and, and Ignatius Loyola. As I was saying, these giants. Bellarmine also mastered the art of preaching. And he said that there are three things that are necessary uh, for a great preacher. We call them three qualities of the soul uh, that without them, the effort of a preacher will be completely in vain. He described the first as a great zeal for the honor of God. The second was wisdom. And the third was eloquence. And it, it's important to make note that while Robert was himself not a very tall person, he was a very slight figure. Uh, in fact, he had to stand on a little stool in order to preach properly, in order to get 
his head over the, the pulpit and a lot of the, uh, the ambo in a lot of places where he was preaching. He riveted his audience and he became a true master at preaching and earned this reputation as a preacher right from the very start after his ordination. You mentioned Lovain, and that has an incredible history, doesn't it, Matthew? Uh, it does, yeah. And, and the thing about uh, the Louvain is that it was positioning uh, Robert to confront and deal right from the very start uh, with the great controversies of his age. In other words, uh, we are dealing, we have to remember that the, the Protestant revolt of the Protestant Reformation had been ongoing now for over half a century. That the, consider that he started his studies at Padua in 1567. Protestant Reformation began in 1517. So we're, we're talking about half a century already of the fire of the Protestant revolt, of the great religious upheavals. And so, uh, from Robert's standpoint, it was essential to master every possible aspect of the Catholic faith, in particular the, the Summa, Summa Theologiae of Thomas Aquinas, in order to be able to do two things. The first is to preach, to teach well, uh, but the other was to engage, as so many Jesuits did, in requirement of defending the faith in the face of Protestant attacks and Protestant apologetics. So he spent seven years in uh, Flanders, sort of in the north of Europe, where the, the great fire of the Protestant revolt was burning down so much of the Catholic Church in that region. The violence, for example, in the Netherlands just nearby uh, is, is breathtaking, including, of course, the, the uh, we have the Protestant revolts in Scotland and in England under uh, Henry VIII, and, of course, by this point, under Elizabeth I. This period in church history, too, there is so much activity going on. It would be a succession of popes. There wasn't exactly the, the type of stability that we've kind of grew accustomed to having you know, John Paul the Great for over 20-some years. I mean, this was a time when there was the leadership, even in the church itself, was in constant flux, wouldn't you say? What we see with the different popes is a genuine commitment to the reform that was so desperately needed uh, earlier on in the 16th century. We have uh, Paul III, uh, who launched the entire reforming movement of the Council of Trent. And then we have, of course, the, the actual council. So Robert was a beneficiary of the great work of the council, so that when he sort of came into his full maturity, we can see that the, the impact of the council was already being felt. And it was one of the reasons why, after seven years uh, in Belgium, in, in Flanders, he was brought to Rome by Pope Gregory XIII to do a couple of things. The first was to lecture on the theology for defending the faith. The other was to help establish the Roman College, what was the ancestor to the Pontifical Gregorian University that, of course, is the, the, fab the famous, fabled uh, university of the Jesuits in Rome that continues to teach today. And so for Robert, he was brought to Rome, and 
with a few exceptions, a few periods outside of Rome, when, for example, he was the Archbishop of Capua, he devoted almost the rest of his life to serving in Rome, to serving this new and reformed papacy. So much so that uh, he was appointed uh, by Clement VIII to be the one thing that his father ironically wanted him to be and that the last thing that he wanted to be, and that was a cardinal. Because he, in, in 1599, was considered the greatest figure for learning in the church. That was a compliment that was paid to him by Pope Clement VIII. Clement said that the Church of God has no equal in his learning. Now imagine, uh, with all of these giants that we've been talking about, uh, roaming around the church at this point, that a pope should say that of Robert Bellarmine. But it was, a, it was a statement of confidence that the papacy had in him, that he was made rector of the Roman college, he was in charge of examining bishops for the appropriateness for their appointments, and then he was named a cardinal. And he proved himself worthy of the rank of cardinal for two key reasons. The first was his love for the continuing reform of the church, but also his absolute lack of personal ambition. It is said, for example, uh, when he was named a cardinal, he, he at first refused, but Pope Clement would brook no refusal. And even as Pope Clement made him a cardinal, he wept during the ceremony to the point that Pope Clement sort of told him, for you know, heaven's sakes, pull yourself together. This, this, is, this is my command. I want you to be a cardinal. Mm-hmm. We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. 
If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. He exhibited such a humility, too, did he not, in his writings, as someone who is so brilliant can often sometimes write so lofty. He wrote in a way that would end up benefiting those who would have to teach the faith in the future. I mean, his writings on Christian doctrine are, are just outstanding catechetical material, even today, aren't they not? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Of uh, Where Robert is concerned, he had a, a massive body of writings, a huge corpus of, of writings on, on almost every aspect of the faith. He's best known uh, for his series of books uh, called the, the Controversies, uh, or the uh, Disputaciones. And basically what he was attempting to do with this was to find a way of looking at, in a very charitable, fair, objective manner, all of the teachings of the, the Reformers, in other words, Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, that were then circulating. Now, why is that important? It's important because he did not create a caricature of these other figures. He was completely objective, totally honest in his treatment of them. So he took all of the writings of Luther, of Calvin, and of Zwingli and others, as I said, and he looked at them in sort of their, their complete fashion. So it was joked among some of the Anglican divines uh, who subsequently tried to refute his writings that, uh, in fact, if you wanted to have a really comprehensive analytical study of the teachings of the Reformers, read Bellarmine, because he, it was all there. He compiled all of it. Now, where they were horrified, as these polemicists of Protestants were concerned, was that he then systematically but very charitably looked at these writings, refuted them, and explained uh, what the true teachings of the church were, are, uh, and how these different reformers uh, went off the track, were, were in error in, their, in their, their own teachings. But the very moderate quality, the very charitable quality of his writings was the cause itself of infuriating uh, so many of the Protestant polemicists who preferred to hide behind creating caricatures of the church and hiding also behind what the church actually taught rather than what they wanted people to think the church taught. And so influential was, was Bellarmine in this uh, that the church Catholics, faithful Catholics, especially those who were able to defend the church, were derisively called Bellarminists. Hmm. Uh, at, at a time when words like papists uh, were also 
gaining currency. But imagine the great honor that they were either intentionally or unintentionally paying to this man, uh, that those who could defend the church uh, were named in his honor, Bellarminists. Now, again, there are so many different controversies that are coming up, and he is one who the church looked at to help navigate through the, uh, the just, can we call it a mess mm-hmm. of heresies, controversies. <laughs> uh, it, it, and even, again, this is the time of the great renaissance. And so there is a lot of exploration of thought, of art, of beauty. And, and yet we also know that sometimes when that happens, chaos can break out. Yes. Uh, and, and Robert, though, had this uh, great ability to take all of these different controversies and look at them very objectively. Uh, I, was, I was mentioning that um, he was much hated uh, by the Protestant polemicists. Um, and chairs, entire chairs in, in Protestant schools and, and uh, universities were established simply to try to refute his writings. That's how broad they were. When we look at his writings, especially on the disputationes or the, the controversies, there's a structure to it uh, that bears great import for us today. And that is that he essentially runs through the, the whole creed so that we begin in volume one with revelation, with the word of God, with Christ, uh, the papacy. He looks at ecumenical councils. He looks at the church. He looks at grace. He looks at the sacraments. He looks at, at justification, free will, good works, all of the things that any Catholic would need in order to pierce the veil of all of these controversies and heresies that were running rampant at the time. That alone earned, I think, Robert the, the great place uh, that he holds in the life of the church, especially wielding that that great title of the doctor of apologetics. He was a defender of the faith, but he did it in a way that could win hearts at the same time. And his moderation was especially key uh, as he approached a number of different questions, as as you've alluded to, including, of course, Giordano Bruno, uh, Galileo, the controversy involving uh, the divine right of kings under uh, King James I, and even the, the problematic relations of the, the popes with the, the uh, La Serenissima of the Great Republic of Venice. Somehow, Robert was always involved in, with, with those, and somehow he brought a voice of moderation, of sensibility uh, to trying to solve these problems, and to do so in a way that gave due justice to the teachings of the church it was also executed with charity, fairness, and authentic justice. It has also been noted that his ability to be able to be that bridge, he no doubt could fly with the eagles as far as the thought, the theology of the church, but he understood the need to care for the sheep and how that is going to be communicated to them. And that, could you say, Matthew, maybe was fueled and received grace from his great devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who herself, kind of in a more massive way, I, I dare say, had that same type of goal. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And that's uh, one of the uh, aspects of his life that is sometimes overlooked, that he loved the Blessed Mother and 
in fact, uh, was one of the, the figures in his era, and now we're, remember we're talking now in the, in the early 17th century, uh, calling for a definition of the Immaculate Conception. There are historians who wonder, and correctly so, uh, if he was in fact the first sort of prelate, the first bishop in the, in the history of the church to petition specifically uh, for this declaration. And what, what's significant too is that you can see his influence um, almost 250 years later uh, when Pope Pius IX actually defined uh, the, the, the teaching, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception in 1854. Uh, the, the very language was very much that uh, used by Robert Bellarmine in, in his petition. He defended all of the teachings of the church on the Blessed Mother uh, and was a strong defender uh, in the Blessed Mother's role in grace and uh, also uh, the, the Feast of the Annunciation. He, of course, was ordained in 1570 on the Feast of the Annunciation and celebrated his first Mass in honor of it. And so for, for Robert, he saw the Blessed Mother as, and correctly so, as one of the key disciples, one of the greatest disciples, and more than that, also as Theotokos, the God-bearer, uh, the, the mother of our Redeemer, and the mother of the Church, and Queen of Heaven. And of course, she was also one of the people who believed firmly in the Blessed Mother as Mediatrix of all graces. And in that sense, then, even at a time when the, the first reformers, such as Luther, still held some notion of great devotion to the Blessed Mother, uh, he was above and beyond a defender of her and anticipated, I think, the darker road uh, that Protestantism took in rejecting so much of the Blessed Mother. And in fact, warned Luther about that that was, that was a real risk as they began unraveling uh, so many of the authentic teachings of the church. How I came to know of Robert Bellarmine's life, ironically enough, were actually the writings that he would em embark on the last decade of his life. Those in which I think we could say, couldn't we, Matthew, were very spiritual works. I mean, the commentaries on the Psalms, the mind's ascent to God by the ladder of created things. The yeah, art. Uh, especially to the, the art of dying well. Yes, yes. Yeah. He uh, always joked that uh, he felt and, and was saddened by the fact that he lived so long. Mm. Uh, and it wasn't that he was trying to kill himself, but I think uh, having given his whole life to the service of the church, to the... the the great work of the church. There's a story that he often told that I think is a cautionary tale for everyone. And that is the man who uh, found himself falling off the side of a cliff and to his great relief was able to grab a small shrub and thought he'd be able to hang on until uh, someone could rescue him or he could possibly scramble up the back to safety only to discover that as he was hanging very tenuously uh, by this shrub, the two mice, one a, a white mouse and the other a black mouse, 
we're chewing away relentlessly at the roots. Mm-hmm. And the lesson of, of Robert in this was that, remember that we have only so much time and that both the day and the night are proceeding, eating away the time that we have. And for him, the art of dying well was to bear that in mind, uh, that we have to be prepared uh, at any time for our passage. But day and night, as he put it, will never pause. And soon uh, they will have chewed through the roots of that little shrub. And then he asked, what will happen then? He is a figure that was so beloved. I don't know if we appreciate it. Could we say that the the person that we might possibly compare him to would be Archbishop Fulton Sheen? Uh, Yeah, I would agree. I I think uh, Sheen, uh, you could argue, had in his personal life was even more of a dynamic type Mm -hmm. of personality. Right. Um, But yeah, I I think in in an era of polemics in an era of apologetics, Bellarmine certainly stands as a great public figure uh, whose genius was recognized by everyone, even his most ardent enemies. And so, yeah, I, I think uh, for someone who understood the, the key of communicating effectively, yes, I think it's a very good uh, comparison. And the, you know, also appreciation for the need to love the poor. Yes. Uh, He had a great devotion to the poor and to caring for those who were weak and forgotten. But that was as much an expression of his abiding love of mercy and his own humility. Uh, There were literally hundreds of stories relating to Robert's uh, generosity, his clemency, his mercy, uh, that... It would take entire volumes to fill them. But one small little telling aspect had to do with the fact that uh, when beggars would come to see him, this is the the poorest of the poor, they were not only given admittance to his offices, but he would rise from his desk and he would remove his cap, his his cardinal's beretta, uh, when he received them. And he would receive them with the same respect and honor as he would the princes and cardinals and bishops who came to see him. Uh, it was his recognition of the innate dignity of these poor uh, that made in the image and likeness of God, he owed them the same respect as he did any powerful person. Wow. And so his love for the poor then was really a manifestation of his love for Christ and his desire to emulate Christ and see Christ in everyone. Wow. He would be in turn then in the great church of St. Ignatius of Loyola in Rome. And it's really, it, it's quite befitting, isn't it? I mean, he, I, I can't imagine that being the good son of St. Ignatius, who himself was a, a little one. I mean, a lot of times we think of these figures as these great giant figures, and yet they are, but they, ironically, they're just, they're little ones, aren't they? They are. And I think one of the things that appealed most to, to Robert, uh, and we can see this interestingly enough in, in the, the Galileo case, where he was always trying to find 
the little way, the solution to problems in a gentle fashion, mm-hmm. uh, in a way that would do proper justice, but that also reflected uh, our humility in the face of uh, the greatness of God and the greatness of creation. So for him, I, I think he was one who never wanted great performance. We know, for example, he did everything he could not to get elected pope. Uh, and he came close. He was a serious candidate probably on three different occasions uh, to be elected pope. But did everything he could to make it clear this was the last thing on earth he wanted to be. Now, would he have made a great pope? Yes, I think he would have. Uh, but for him, uh, it is that humility. It is the little things that matter. And he never forgot the little things or the little ones. Uh, in his writings, in his preaching, and in his living. Final thoughts on this wonderful doctor of the church? Yeah, I, I think uh, it is in Robert's smallness and his humility Uh that he combined genius with holiness, and it's a lesson for us today that as we defend the church, and and heaven knows we have to, we have to do so with love, with charity, with justice, and to remember always the little ones uh, who are impacted the most by the changes in culture, by the our failures, uh, and if we are seriously committed to them, then we have to see Christ in them and be more like Christ ourselves. Beautiful. Dr. Matthew Bunsen, thank you so much. Great to be with you, Chris. Take care and God bless. You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, and if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.